Good evening, and I welcome you to this Urban Age public lecture. My name is Wolfgang Nowak. I'm director of the Alfred Herrn Society. We are doing together with the London School of Economics and now with the LSE Cities this Urban Age program. And we have been to many cities around the world with Richard Sennett. He has suffered in Shanghai. We have been, the heat was terrible. We have been to Mumbai with our guest. And we have been to many cities, and the result of all these worldwide investigations to the future of cities is this lecture series. And I'm very proud to welcome you today, Raul Meruta. Well, he is, he holds the chair of urban design in Harvard. He has been upgraded from the MIT to this chair. He is a famous architect. He divides his life between India, US, and Europe. And he is one of those wonderful persons who has learned and teaches us to see the world with the eyes of the others. Thanks to him, we, can, we have been able to see Indian cities, but he is at the same time able to see American and European cities. He's a man who is provoking us, who is teaching us, and guiding us. And in a time of transition, we need, in our cities, we need guidance. I have also the honor to present to you Professor Richard Burdett. Maybe many of you, some of you have heard about his name, and it's true. He is the father of Zara Burdett, a famous researcher who has enabled Tony Judd to write a wonderful book. It's uh, a book about social democracy. It's called Ill Fares the Land, and it was written before David Cameron became Prime Minister. Now I have the honor <laughs> to ask Raul Meruta to address us, and then Ricky will talk, will organize the discussion. Thank you again for coming, and thank you for being with us. My role will be to uh, moderate the discussion afterwards. Thanks very much. Thank you, and uh, thanks for the introduction. It's a real honor to be here and to be kicking off, so to speak, this new uh, lecture series, which is engaging designers, uh, from what I understand, for the first time uh, in the deliberations here. And I think for me this is particularly special because the last time I spoke here in London was about 15 years ago, and I think I addressed the Georgian Society about Georgian architecture and preservation. And so it's nice to project into the future, uh, which is always more fun. Uh, I, you know, when I was asked to speak about uh, design for informality, I was perplexed because I'm not sure you can do that. Uh, and I struggled with this and I slipped in this title Kinetic City because I think it's an idea I want to explore with you which I think could be an, a link in, in ways that one can actually uh, learn from informality perhaps as designers, as people who are concerned with city. Uh, informa informality uh, is something that is outside the formal system, the way we all understand it, uh, or outside the legal system. Perhaps its use originated in economics was 
extended to the physical manifestation of our environments and this fringe condition in the form of the informal city. Uh, really a response to what the formal sy system could not deliver, or perhaps the bar of the formal system was too high, uh, at least when I read the Indian condition since independence, uh, I think that's also part of the problem. And so there's this schism that wasn't be, you know, that couldn't be sort of bridged. But of course, as the critical mass of the informal city increased, this was sharply juxtaposed in the form of this binary between the formal and the informal. And I think that's problematic. And we've been sort of stuck always with that binary. Uh, because while these are totally independent in their sort of evolving relationship, uh, the economic physical characteristics of each of these worlds is well identified and tied in space and physical form. Uh, and how do you actually always get stuck with trying to reconcile this binary? Uh, and the cast of characters that are engaged in the informal economy are supposed to reside in the informal city. But in this sort of messy, mutinous, democratic condition of Mumbai, uh, and most past parts of India, could we dim the lights, please? Uh, most parts of India, this relationship is not such a neat relationship. In Mumbai, often people employed in the formal sector reside in the informal city, and vice versa. And I think the more interesting and important factors that create this informal, informality that, that we are trying to deal with are the question of density and democracy. And, uh, you know, so this image here, which is, these are both images from the 80s uh, of things that were being discussed in Mumbai in the late 70s. And this one is a Lakshman cartoon, which where you have a bureaucrat and a politician discussing the slums and the rail line. And, you know, the bureaucrat telling the politician it will be easier to move the rail line rather than the slums. And so that resistance in, in a democratic condition uh, is sort of manifest or manifests in the form of these cities being sort of perpetuated. And also, the state level political elite in India have really been uh, from sort of rural constituencies uh, and the lack of local self-governance until very recently uh, has, uh, has not created a situation where the urban elite engaged with urban issues through the 70s and 80s in India. It's now beginning to happen, and we'll come to that. So there, there, there are a number of these factors that have kind of led to the creation of this sort of dual city, the informality, the setting up of this binary. And it is for this reason I believe that Mumbai has been the center of the world's imagination in the last few years for all the wrong reasons, reasons at least that I'm embarrassed about. And it's interesting interesting that architects, artists, filmmakers celebrate this condition through installations, artwork, uh, but it's actually embarrassing that as a society we don't project into problem solving, uh, into projections of the future and how we can actually. So we've also made these the mythical images uh, which we are trapped in in the same way as we are trapped with these binaries. Uh, and I think it's time that uh, the profession of design and planning re-engage with this in a kind of projective way and how you can create these new uh, 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 counterpoints to this kind of uh, failure. How do we spatially and physically convert this supposedly wonderful energy that the informal world has uh, and innovation uh, and, and produce an equitable, just, and human environment? I mean, I think that debate seems to have gone out and there's a kind of celebration of this condition. And so this image of the world's, this is the world's largest and the world's smallest sort of living space. Uh, that's the Ambani residence where it's about 100,000 square feet per person. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have about 18 square feet uh, per person as the normal condition uh, in Mumbai. 
And I think Slumdog Millionaire, and so you get, a, you get these sort of adjacencies uh, where you have these conditions collapsing very closely together. And Slumdog Millionaire, in a sense, was interesting. It was almost a documentary for me of Mumbai because it, it got under the skin of the city and it set up these dualities in a beautiful way. The first half of this film was on the ground, the child, horizontal, in the slum, uh, and shot in Hollywood style. And the second half of the film was shot in Bollywood style. It was vertical. It was a gaze of the city from above. Uh, and these were two sets of aspirations that evolve, or condition and then aspiration that evolve in the life of a single person. Uh, and in that sense, it was very accurate in what it portrayed. I'm just going to go back for a minute. Mumbai, for those of you who might not be familiar, seven islands that become a city. Uh, it's incremental, it's growth, it's a fictitious city in the sense it's man-made. Uh, the, the rail system sets up the structure and the DNA for the city, so to speak. The city grows along the infrastructure in the first you know, 100 years of its existence, infrastructure really leads growth. Uh, and it's projective, uh, land is opened up. There's a synergy between uh, physical form, infrastructure, direction of growth. It's a city that's founded on trade. Uh, it was not expected to become a large town. Instead, it grew incrementally, as I just showed you. It did not have a master plan, and, and it was really a trading post. This is an image uh, uh, called the arrival of goods after the cold season, uh, the founding sort of uh, years of the city. And then over time, as it grew into a global hub for the region, it's, it was settled, it was celebrated, uh, buildings, infrastructure, a great port, all synergized to propel it to becoming one of the greatest cities in the world, the real world cities. Uh, and it, it, it had yet two worlds. Uh, one world was this world uh, where clearly architecture was the spectacle of the city. It was an ordered world, it was a static city, it was predictable, it was modern. Uh, and the other world, which was in another space, uh, was uh, what, what, what we call, what, or what the colonials called the native town, or what was the Indian town, which was uh, a city that had a completely different basis. It, it, it had different densities. Architecture wasn't a spectacle of the city. There were all sorts of temporal spectacles that made the city. And these two places existed in two worlds. And Bombay was sort of challenged by its location and its topography, and therefore density. As these cities grew, that diagram blurred. The dual, the dual, the dual city diagram, which is a kind of colonial diagram, which Anthony King and other scholars have um, spoken a lot about, uh, completely blurred. The 1950s, that is post-independence, through to the 80s, what's very interesting in India is uh, only recently with the JNRUM, we've bought renewal or we've bought uh, the fixing of our old cities back into discussion. Uh, our, our first three decades of city planning were characterized, characterized by flights into utopia. It was all about new towns. Of course, this had to do with trends that were occurring ar around the globe, uh, but our attention was about the new modernist town. Uh, uh, I mean, they were New Bombay, Chandigarh, Gandhinagar, a series of them, Bhubaneswar. But the, the entire planning profession, um, uh, the teaching of planning, uh, focused around this. Looking at historic city centers, cause, renewal, upgrading infrastructure, didn't even come into discussion except in a very isolated way with slum upgradation through the late 70s and 80s with John Turner and people who were influenced by them. The DPU here uh, in London was a very instrumental player there. 
But now Mumbai, uh, as it's referred to, like several cities in India and perhaps around the world in this post-industrial scenario, has become a critical site for this sort of negotiation between elite and subaltern cultures. There's a whole shift here. Uh, the slums, uh, or the temporary city, which is what this diagram shows you, uh, is a very particular pattern in Mumbai. And I think even this is a subject for much greater research, because when you look at cities like Ahmedabad and Delhi, you often have urban villages which have grown and they've become special planning zones. And if you look at a map of Delhi, even Ahmedabad, cities which are not challenged by density like Mumbai is, the pattern of, uh, of the growth of the informal city is quite different. In Mumbai, it's clearly interstitial space, no man's land. And, and it's a very particular pattern in the way it, 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 it weaves itself through the city. Of course, there are some characteristics about ambiguity in land ownership uh, that, that are common through some of these, but I think the origins are quite different. And uh, I, you know, I, without getting into this, I think it's a area of, of, of a very interesting area for research. And in any case, it's sort of woven its presence through the entire urban landscape, what we call the informal city. It's a bazaar-like urbanism. Uh, and it's a pirate modernity that sort of slips under the laws of the city to simply survive without any conscious attempt at constructing a counterculture. And uh, I think the phenomena, uh, this phenomenon is critical to the city being connected to the global economy. However, the spaces it creates have largely been excluded from the cultural discourse on globalization, which focuses on elite domains of production in the city. It's not only the city of the poor or the regular models of the formal and informal, and such are the binaries often used to explain cities developing South and Central America, in South and Central America, Asia, and Africa, but it's what I call a kinetic space, a space where these models actually collapse into a singular entity where meanings are ever shifting and blurred. It is to this space, the space of the bazaar city, the kinetic city, Mumbai as a kinetic city is what I'm going to attempt to focus our attention this evening. And the question for me is, can we design for this space as architects, conservationists, urban designers, planners? Can we design with a divided mind? Uh, today, uh, Mumbai and most often Indian cities are not the static and stable entities that we've always imagined cities to be. Physical constructs where stable meanings are contained in architecture that then become the spectacle of the city, where the memory of the city is encoded and contained in these objects. Uh, and I, I think all the city-states which are celebrated, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Shanghai, Hong Kong, is where architecture is clearly the spectacle of the city. And it's, it's interesting that those are city-states and so there is, it resonates with the question of democracy, governance, etc., how these are made. Instead, Mumbai, I would describe as a kinetic city, a bazaar city, and not a city perceived by architecture or cohesive urban design gestures, but by spaces which hold associative values and are supportive of lives. Patterns of occupation determine its form and perception. It's an indigenous urbanism that has its particular local logic. It's not, like I said, necessarily the city of the poor, as most images might suggest. Rather, it's a temporal articulation and occupation of space, which not only create a richer sensibility of spatial occupation, but also suggests how spatial limits are expanded to include formerly unimagined uses in dense urban conditions. And I think this is something that is at least of interest to me and I think becomes, these are the questions which I believe can help us connect to questions of urban design, physical planning, uh, etc. So when you look at open spaces, 
It's amazing how challenged we are in Mumbai, uh, just in proportion uh, uh, in terms of ratios of open space. Uh, and this is a sort of fact that's well known that 0 0.03 acres per person includes the traffic islands. Uh, so it's really, I mean, desperate uh, when we sort of look at, look at those proportions. Just look at New York and your beautiful London. and it's it. So then when you compare it to scale with even Manhattan, besides the, the challenge we have just in the amount of open space, the fragmentation is even it highlights uh, the, the, the desperation in terms of the problem and and you can see how I mean here just with this consolidation you get a sense in the presence of it and I'm going to show you uh, you know these three this little green that you see here which is a dot on this map and even that is so intensely used that it's mind-boggling so I think we stretch our imagination and the way these spaces are used to an absolute extreme so those three images which I mean those three spaces which sit on the bay in one of the most beautiful locations uh, that's what they are they call the Maidans and this is the bay. This is an image from the 70s when BA was yet BOAC. Uh, SO, uh, the Air India building, for those of you who know Mumbai, was yet under construction. And if you look at it today, that's the use of the Maidans in the evenings. They become these venues for incredible weddings. And this is not the city of the poor. This is the super rich in the city that actually use it. And I'm just going to run you through this very quickly. I had a photographer friend document this for me recently. So it starts in the morning with cricket, uh, this wonderful, uh, as we say, this wonderful Indian game invented by the British. Uh, <laughs> and then by noon, when it's too hot to play cricket, uh, the folks who set up the weddings move in, and they start setting it up. By evening, by, sun, by sunset, the venue is all set. The family is waiting for the bride and groom to arrive. And it's, the wedding happens there. There are waterfalls, plants, video cameras, and it, it's this incredible sort of event and it's interesting how it sits there the only place that's not touched is the cricket pitch because that's sacred <laughs> um, the club have take high tea uh, uh, on the lawns uh, uh, and the wedding wraps around uh, and there's a kitchen that's set up there. Uh, it's a great benefit to the members of the club because this kitchen which is making wonderful kebabs and things for the wedding also sort of serves them. So it's sort of there's a nice synergy in terms of food production and distribution. But this thing occurs and by the next morning it leaves no trace. It completely disappears. And it's incredible how the margins of the city are expanded and what this does is it sort of uh, presents, I think, a compelling vision that potentially allows us to better understand the blurred lines of contemporary urbanism and the changing roles of people and spaces in urban society. And I think this increasing concentration of global flows have heightened the inequalities and spatial division of social classes, which have a huge implication. This is an image which, as a student in the 70s, I found. It's called the five stages of squatting. And this was sketched up by an English architect who I've never, who's name I've never been able to find. I remember photocopying this as a student from an architectural review uh, and that's one of my plans to research and find who had actually done them because they really do explain how our cities are formed. Uh, this guy starts and you know he becomes sort of part of the landscape, becomes very secure. This guy's in the third stage of squatting where he's not yet built his shelter, which will happen in the summer when everyone will sympathize with him. And then the monsoon will come, so he'll fortify it. And then it's been nine months and everyone will forget whether was he there earlier last year or not? No one knows. And the whole city is sort of made by these incremental moves. Uh, and of course that happens with housing too. You can break it down into these moves that happen over time. 
And then a whole lot of strategies that sort of come out as a response from what you might call the formal city. This is the cleanest and the whitest wall in Mumbai because this housing society came up with this great idea of putting the pantheon of gods on their compound wall. And so no one came and squatted near them or built anything close to that because it became a sacred space. And so this is a strategy now that the formal city uses as a way of sort of countering the informal city. So these tactics then sort of begin to play out. Uh, this again is sort of emblematic in the economy of the, the you know the invention of these sachets to sell shampoo or betel nut, uh, which Procter Gamble sort of uh, uh, based on C K Pralad, the, the late C K Pralad's bottom of the pyramid, and his advice to these companies, they sort of disaggregated uh, products in a way that they opened up very large markets uh, and in, in a sense this sort of by, by not locking up someone's monthly a worker's monthly income in a bottle of shampoo but breaking it down into 50 sachets allowing them to buy one every two days uh, with much smaller amounts of money uh, opened up this incredible market which I think gives us clues well it's also the way this informal city sort of grows but it might give us clues about how we might actually strategize about this uh, and then of course there's some that resist it. Uh, this is a map which shows McDonald densities in different cities. And in, in Mumbai, what's interesting is the invention of home delivery. So very few people go to McDonald's, they just deliver at home. Uh, and I'm not sure many other cities do that. So this is a reversal of the drive-in idea of the origins in the United States where it drives to you uh, in a sense. It's a complete kind of reversal. Uh, and of course, this sort of density, this collapsing, the adjacencies of a temple, a guy selling formal shops selling pumps and someone else selling something else informally is absolutely amazing. There's a whole type uh, that you could break it down into, the spread, the canopy, the mobile, inserted, attached, which sort of coincide with these five stages of squatting. But then you put an index of security, and the top is the least secure, and the bottom is the most secure. And then that becomes part of the landscape of the city. So uh, I mean, you, you, we can study this. We can map it. Uh, I, I'm just trying to push where this might go. Uh, and that's sort of this explora uh, exploration. And of course, there is uh, the distributive ability of the informal city, if I may say that. These are some uh, statistics that I got from journalists and from the Times of India, actually more formally, uh, about bribes that are paid per day. And it's absolutely humongous. And the annual revenue of the informal uh, economy, according to 2005 statistics, was 550 million euros. And the money spent on bribes is 150. So it kind of distributes it back to the formal city, in a sense. So this sort of linkage, which we all know about, uh, the scale of this is quite, quite enormous uh, and quite interesting. So I think this kinetic city, bazaar-like in its form, can really be seen as a symbolic image of the emerging urban condition. The processions, the weddings, the festivals, hawkers, street vendors, slum dwellers, all create this ever-transforming uh, streetscape that all of us who know India are very aware of. It's a city in constant motion where the physical fabricate, fa fabric is actually characterized by this kinetic quality. The static city, on the other hand, as we've known and described cities and are making cities today in this global world, depend on architecture for their representation. And in Mumbai, it's not the single image by which the city is read. Thus, architecture is not the spectacle of the city, nor does it even comprise the single dominant image of the city. In contrast, festivals, this changing landscape, the presence of this everyday landscape pervades and dominates the popular culture, popular visual culture of Indian cities. So festivals then create a forum through which the fantasies of the subalterns of the informal are articulated and even organized into political action. 
action as in the case of the Ganesh festival which has become phenomenal uh, in India and occurs in August and September. New spaces are created to house the idol of Ganesh for 10 days uh, during the celebration. And it's amazing. Film stars get involved. Uh, these are all temporary structures that are built for the 10 days in Plaster of pa Paris and Papamèche. Uh, they're humongous in terms of investment uh, and in terms of the impact they have on the visual landscape. Uh, and, and then this becomes on the culminating days, it's the fourth day, the many days, families, smaller communities uh, immerse the god in the water. But on the final day, this becomes this humongous spectacle with about five million people sort of involved. And each procession that uh, takes the idol out to the sea carries a tableau depicting images of Lord Ganesh uh, mediating global and local concerns, which range from if India's won the World Cup, uh, the cricketers would be at his feet. Uh, if there is an economic crisis, then it's the Reserve Bank governor being whipped or you know, something like that. Uh, so it's, it's, it becomes a way that, uh, that, uh, that these concerns are actually represented. So it's, it's quite serious in terms of the layers that it begins to engage with. And this representation is not based on any formal scriptures or predetermined rules because this is a recent invention. This is an, a, a pre-independence invention of publicizing or making public uh, uh, this festival. This is a very private festival and it came out of a political thing. I don't want to get into that, but we can discuss it if someone's interested. But this representation is not based on formal uh, scriptures or predetermined rules. Instead, human ingenuity breaches the boundaries between the local and the global, the historic and the contemporary. They convey the, convey the hybrid urgencies of metropolitan India. The neighborhood processions weave through predetermined rules, uh, uh, routes in the city. Each procession wise against other neighborhood processions to showcase the intensity of their following. Set against the backdrop of the static city, the procession culminates with the immersion of the idol and it, bid fa it bids farewell amidst chanting, inviting Ganesh to re re resurrect its presence the following day. And these are the kinds of numbers, it's quite amazing. I mean, just if you look at those numbers, just the public idols, which are the ones you see in this image, there were 1,524 that were immersed. I mean, the scale of this thing is absolutely incredible. Uh, and I'm sure, again, this is an area of research. If you totaled up what money was spent into this, we might in five years be able to build a Petronas star. So, you know, I mean, it is really a counterpoint to architecture as the spectacle. And as a society, we seem to, I mean, for various reasons, and that's a discussion in itself, um, uh, and in, in any case, it sort of is this humongous thing uh, that culminates. Uh, so here, immersion becomes a metaphor for the spectacle of the city. As the clay idol dissolves in the water of the bay, the spectacle comes to a close. There are no static or permanent mechanisms to encode the spectacle. Here, the memory of the city is an enacted process, a temporal moment as opposed to buildings that contain the public memory as static or permanent entities. The city and its architecture are not synonymous and cannot, contain, cannot be contained in a single meaning. Within the kinetic city, meanings are not stable. Spaces get consumed, reinterpreted, and recycled. The kinetic city recycles the static city often to create new spectacles. This transformative ability of the kinetic city becomes more vivid in the events that play out. And I'm going into preservation questions for a few minutes here because I think they're really interesting here. In Mumbai's town hall, this is one of the few classical buildings in Mumbai because Mumbai was really a neo-Gothic city. Uh, and we had, when this was built as the city hall, 
There was a tradition under the colonial uh, government that the governor went and addressed the citizens at once a year from the town hall. And like many things in India, we carried on this tradition, except now the Indian governor goes and addresses the citizens as part of the Asiatic society. But the symbolism of the governor going to a town hall to address the citizens for some bizarre reason has carried on. But we couldn't figure out when, when should the governor address the citizens. So we decided it should be Independence Day. Independence Day is the 15th of August, and it usually pours on the 15th of August. So the challenge then for the public works department that has to ensure the governor goes up these 34 steps dry uh, is a big one. And this is how they respond. What they do is they wrap the building. <laughs> and, uh, and it's very interesting how they do this every year. They absolutely transform this building. And the conservationists in the city go berserk every year. These are conservationists who've come here to the UK. They've studied at York. Uh, they've been told how to go through the ritual of identifying significance, what to guard, what grade the building should. And this is like berserk. They're letters to the editor, and everyone goes kind of crazy. Uh, and it's interesting because I think what, for me, I think, you know, I think this is great because what, what, uh, uh, what the PWD d does is they actually subvert this colonial kind of icon uh, and kind of re it's recolonized by the kinetic city. They alter the significance of the building, you know, just for that one day, uh, like the cricket thing, this disappears by the next morning to expand the margins of the kinetic city. And it's a completely reversible action because it, it touches the building very lightly. They put no nails. It's, 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 it's coir rope which is used to tie you know to the railings and to props and they absolutely create this wonderful I think transformation and I think this uh, idea takes on a critical dimension when contemplating the preservation of built environments because it really throws up a challenge how do you do this if we if we do accept that uh, cultural memory is an enacted process as in the kinetic city or where meanings are fluid like in the kinetic city if we just accept the idea of the kinetic city for a minute this becomes even more complicated in the post-colonial condition in Mumbai uh, by the fact that the creators and the custodians of these historic environments in Mumbai, in the static city, are different cultures. So the creators are, you know, were, were, was this was the colonial British sort of culture, and uh, and now there is another culture that are the custodians. And how do you make this sort of relationship? And these are two very beautiful statues: Queen Victoria's canopy statue by Matthew Noble, 1872 and King, King Edward VII on his black horse, which is called Kala Ghoda, I mean black horse, which is how an area in Mumbai is called. And between, 18, between 1965 and 1970, the statues were moved to Victoria Garden, uh, uh, which is on the edge of the Bombay Zoo as part of the right-wing fundamentalism that wanted all these icons out of there. And they sit now in a completely different <laughs> surrounding. Uh, the canopy has disappeared. People you know, sleep there in the afternoon, picnic at the feet of these great statesmen uh, and uh, King Edward here. So, so there's a kind of strange, um, uh, I mean, there's an important question here uh, when we talk about preservation, if you buy the arguments that I'm making about the, uh, the, the kinetic city, because cultural significance um, in its definition by the Borough Charter and through the canons of preservation and the discussions that have happened in that world is a definition that's object-centric, devoid of life, with its roots perhaps in the debates propagated by the antiquarians the Renaissance. The interesting question is how does one deal with this idea or notion of significance then in a highly pluralistic society where cultural memory is often an enacted process as in the kinetic city or the meanings are fluid. And I mean I think there is 
I think we have no choice but to construct significance in ways that, so, so how could this happen? I'm just going to show you one example. This is a lecture in itself, but I just thought that was important, where we began to get involved with a district in Mumbai where King Edward's statue originally stood, and the area is called Kala Ghoda, which means black horse, from the memory of the horse days, but not of King Edward. And even today, it's very interesting. I got involved in preservation through one incident that occurred to me when I went back after studying in the US to practice in America, in India, and I took a taxi one day and I said to the taxi driver who I assumed, you know, was probably not even educated, and I said, Kala Ghoda, which means I was referring to this area because my office was here and I wanted to go there, and he turned back to me and he said, do you want to go to where the Kala Ghoda used to be or where it is now? And I thought that was really interesting, and we got into a very interesting conversation, and I was amazed how much this ordinary taxi driver from Uttar Pradesh knew about the history of this whole thing. And, and, and it was interesting, he didn't know who sat on the Kala Ghoda, but he remembered the black horse. And that's what's embedded in people's memory, and this whole area is named after it. So we got involved in the preservation process here, and we realized very soon that it was a dead end to new, use nostalgia uh, as a way of uh, creating a constituency that might be propelled to conserve the buildings and this area. Uh, and it was critical to invent something of a new significance. Uh, and, uh, and of course, one can look at this more clearly in retrospect. We were then just fighting a guerrilla war to preserve these buildings. And I'm sort of recapping how that happened. And what we really landed, this is what, that's where the statue used to be, and now it's a parking lot. So we got involved in this through legislation first. Nothing happened. But we had legislation on our side. Then we began organizing citizens groups, and we did this in five or six different areas in Mumbai, and this was the first one where we started working with, and we began to do little things like whitewash buildings that cost 5,000 rupees to do, or 10,000 rupees, which is $200 US dollars, and began to improve the place to build a constituency. Then we invented this idea of an art district because we realized the new users there were art galleries, and that had a lot of currency. We began to signpost it uh, to build in people's perception the idea that this is an art district in the city. Uh, began to do a festival, uh, which began to light up buildings. Uh, the festival became really, you know, well established. Uh, interstitial spaces began to get animated for different uses, which were garbage dumps, not used very often. Uh, people started putting art on their facades to sell art during the festivals. Uh, we put up pavement galleries. And over two or three years, this, this new significance of this place as an art district was constructed. But what that really did was raise money for the preservation of the buildings. And this is a painting by Hussein, who did a memory of the Kala Ghoda in the place it used to be. Uh, again, he left Edward out, King Edward out. Uh, but this raised money to start the foundation, the trust, uh, and the money was then used to uh, restore public spaces so that they could be used. Now, vintage car rallies are kicked off from here. A festival is held every year. Artists do sculpture and installations here, uh, signposting, street furniture, things that in the Western society are taken as being, you know, that the government would actually deliver them. That doesn't happen in India. And so we kind of stepped in. And the money actually restored the grade one buildings in the area. And the buildings were restored. So the method was not uh, to go and raise money for the buildings and say that this building has to be restored and use the rhetoric that might have been the rhetoric of the creators of, of these environments. But then to actually invent a new rhetoric and an argument 
for who now were the custodians of this environment and what use would this sort of be to them. And the fact that it became a new animated public space had a lot of credibility, it had a lot of uh, force in terms of the way it got people together and their whole relationship with the place is, is very different uh, as a result of that. And the bazaars in the Victorian arcades in Mumbai, which again people would know about, are I think emblematic of this, where hawking is illegal, there's always been trying to be removed, uh, the, the arcades are intact, but can you reconcile the illusion of architecture with the use, which is a contemporary use, even if temporarily? And I mean, I think these become the design challenges uh, of reconciliation, and the reconciliation, even if it's temporary, and I'll come back to uh, what I mean with that. Uh, so then it's really about this temporary adjustment. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's about this sort of elastic condition. Uh, it's not about a grand vision, it's about a grand adjustment. How do you make this adjustment and how you, do you make this adjustment in a temporary way? Now clearly the static and the kinetic city go beyond their obvious differences to a much, much richer relationship both spatially and metaphorically than their physical manifestations would suggest and the economy is a clear area. And the Dabbawalas, which again everyone sort of celebrates and I'll run through this very quickly is I think a great example of this where an informal system uh, kind of maps onto a formal infrastructure and leverages it. It, it, it again extends its margins uh, to, to, to be able to achieve uh, you know, another whole service, another whole employment of 5,000 people, uh, etc. Again, an example of this sort of elasticity if one thinks outside the binary of the formal being something and the informal being something else. How do we begin to collapse and imagine this? And for those of you who don't know about this, it's you know this complex system of delivery hundreds and thousands of these lunch boxes are delivered they use the train system it makes it very unique to mumbai people have tried it elsewhere and of course it's not efficient because of the linear pattern no place is too far from the railway line so that it can be sort of through a system of relays uh, sort of fed in there and of course the train systems themselves are extended and in spite of that uh, you're beginning to do this where you know those are the kinds of statistics that you actually have the whole population of uh, mumbai equal to the population of Australia, but Sydney, the population of Sydney goes in and out of Mumbai stations, which is one that's often thrown. But for me, what's interesting is what I call the crush factor, where you actually squeeze it down to 16 people per square meter. And I got, we did this actually with my students. And of course, people are at angles, just your feet are on that sort of square footage pad. But we actually did manage to get 16 people in there. And that factor is very, very high. And so this system actually uses that uh, very efficiently. This is in a suburb urban location, a grandmother who cooks or in an extended family or a mother. Uh, and people take food for various reasons, because of hygiene, because of ethnic and you know, the, uh, cuisine restrictions, because of religion. Uh, and, and so there, there are many phenomena that have sort of supported or propelled this to happen. Um, and I think Katzenstein, who is a sociologist, American sociologist, had a very interesting observation. She said that in, in Mumbai, at places of work because people all dress similarly, they give up their ethnic garb uh, at places of work, in the corporate world especially, uh, but they rely on the dabba to bring their lunch, that uh, at lunchtime suddenly their ethnic identities get re reinforced or get established because people's foods become visible to each other and you know if someone's uh, vegetarian because they're a Jain or you know their religious uh, preferences and you know all of that. So they're sort of, I think again this is a very rich area uh, and, and then this relay 
today uh, where you have different people who pick it up, different people who sort of connect to the rails. You have compartments now that are dedicated just for these guys. Uh, and then the distribution system in the CBD. Uh, and uh, then this again gets broken down and there's a vendor who takes it to particular buildings in the elevator. He's yet sorting it out and he delivers it to you and then takes it back home. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely amazing, the cost and the speed and efficiency with this that with which this is done. So entrepreneurship in the kinetic city is an autonomous and oral process that demonstrates the ability to fold the formal and informal into a symbiotic relationship. The Dabbawala, like several other informal services that range from banking, money transfer, courier, the electronic bazaar, leverage community relationships and networks and deftly use the static city and its infrastructure beyond intended margins. These networks create a synergy that depend on mutual integration with the obsession of formalized structure. So, I mean, I think that's the commonality between the way the economy pans itself out using infrastructure as well as what I showed you at the open spaces. Uh, and there must be a whole spectrum between it, which is again fertile uh, ground for, for research. For some issues such as housing, and now I'm going to spend the next few minutes on housing and then talk about some ideas for projective uh, questions. Uh, the relationship between formal and informal is not so seamlessly integrated. While it operates efficiently, its physical ma manifestations are more disruptive. Uh, and of course, uh, the slums, the informal city also locates itself around the rail lines, uh, and this is a contested and a you know, difficult issue in Mumbai, but it, it, it's, it's, its integration is not as seamless. Uh, here you can see in this slide that you have major infrastructure on both sides and becomes a logical place for this kind of interstitial space to be used for occupation uh, for housing. In fact, I think the issue of housing most vividly demonstrates the this, this aspiration uh, of the formal city to reorder the informal city or the static city to reorder the, in, the, 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 not the kinetic city, but the informal city. In Mumbai, for example, as we know, 60% of the population live in these slums and they occupy 8 to 10% of the land. That, that number varies and then you can break it down. So the dynamics are more complicated than what I'm going to present here. And this number has risen with the new liberal economy. And this is a very interesting map made by a professor at Michigan uh, where you can see where he's weighed by size the problem of housing and you can see how India, it is really central, the notion of overcrowded or dense housing where he's, I think, used the assumption more than two people occupying one room uh, you know, makes it a crowded kind of condition. Uh, and of course that is it is, it is very particular, uh, even compared to most other informal cities in other parts of the world. Uh, here you can see in this one room the amount of stuff that happens, including this ritual that's being performed by the family who lives there, that's their refrigerator, so the kitchen is right there, they sleep right there, the television, the entertainment, all in that one space uh, clad by this corrugated metal. Uh, and, and, and so it, it's, it's, it is uh, quite a particular condition. Um, uh, and this number, like I said, has risen with a new liberal economy that curtails bargaining capacities through the fragmentation of labor in these cities. And despite its informal nature, this population's productivity actually allows Mumbai to be somewhat competitive at a global scale, so that's a real contradiction. And so besides the lack of access to basic infrastructure like water, you know, as you can see here, it's just incredible, uh, the deficiencies. Um, this is a really compelling image by Ro Robert Applegarth where you have this 
uh, water main, which it, it does many things. It, it allows this settlement to organize itself around it. It becomes the, 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 the street by which this little girl can go to school because there's no other path that leads out of it. And what you see with the white canopies along the pipe are the illicit liquor vendors because they make very fine holes into the pipe to tap for the water and they create hooch there. So there's all these sort of economies. So the pipe then becomes not only a container, but it becomes a con it, it con uh, contaminates the water in many ways um, uh, to the city. And these uh, comparisons are bizarre in terms of their unequal distribution uh, between what you might call the informal city. And then Mumbai's obsession with washing cars is amazing. And you know, for those of you again know Mumbai, you all in the morning if you go for a walk at six, everyone's washing tires and windscreens, and it's it's an amazing employment thing. But it's in terms of water usage, it's bizarre how it actually skews that distribution even more. And of course, regular so flow and instability and indeterminacy are basic to the informal city. Regular demolitions heighten this sort of tenuous occupation of land. Uh, and the demolitions, as we all know, inhibit any in investment the occupants might ma make in their living conditions. So it, it really leaves no ruin. It gets recycled. And I think this is one where the relationship is disruptive and it's not uh, so seamless. And so this only heightens the growing contradictions in the islands of increasing concentration of wealth manifest physically in the gated communities throughout the city and the edge of the city and the suburbs. The popular metaphor and reference making Mumbai Shanghai or Dubai or Singapore is emblematic of this one-dimensional imagination that planners and especially politicians bring to bear on decisions about the city's development and more importantly about its physical form. And what they're doing in the process, to borrow Richard Sennett's words, is create a really brittle urban form uh, versus uh, you know what you see in the informal city or in the uh, in, in the city that is made up of these incremental moves is a, it's, it's a high degree of social resolution it's like pixels on a computer screen uh, there's so many more pixels that the resolution is that much higher uh, and, and 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 I think here you're creating a, a completely different kind of social construct uh, as a result of that and I think this obvious extension of the Shanghai metaphor is, the no, is this notion of making the city or remaking the city in a singular image and using architecture as the spectacle to represent this global aspiration. I mean, that really drives it. And such global implications also raise political questions that challenge the democratic process naturally and lead us to the question of governance. And the middle class is one that can be, by politicians, uh, activated into supporting these dreams because for the middle class, like middle class societies anywhere, uh, predictability is uh, of a great premium to have predictable infrastructure, schools, education, naturally. And as the middle class grows, you see uh, this sort of acceleration of uh, the selling of these images. Uh, the classic one is this idea of this group that has become the remaking Mumbai group. And you see here, I'm sorry, the slide is not group, but they use Shanghai, even London, and to show this is what Mumbai is like, and that's what they're going to make Mumbai like. And this is something that it's amazing how uh, much popularity they have. And that's really what is happening to the form of the city. Uh, and it's marching on very quickly to what is in the foreground here are the post-industrial landscapes, the Perel Mill lands, the eastern waterfront, etc. You also have these flights of, into utopia and these new kinds of proposals like Lavasa. These are special economic zones. And they use these images uh, to make 
create counterpoints for these, which is what they're selling. Uh, and this is also something, I mean, this is, again, a discussion in itself. I'm happy to answer questions where the SEZ is a land conversion scam, and you know, there's a whole other dynamics that propels it. But essentially, it's about seceding from the city. Uh, about, and that's what gated communities are. Um, I think in the case of India, different from the US or the West, where they are seceding to become independent in terms of the predictable infrastructure that they want uh, to put into place, rather than security concerns, as you might have in the US uh, and other parts. So the su succession from the city has to do uh, with, that's what drives it. And so when you then go into governance, I think that uh, it becomes uh, uh, an important question. And, uh, and perhaps is most critical when negotiating this question of the static and the kinetic, and also an effective point of intervention. Uh, through the city-making process, globalization and its particular transgressions in the urban landscape are realized, but it's also how the kinetic city can simultaneously resist or participate in this process of globalization, as well as reconfigure itself socially and culturally and spatially uh, becomes, of course, the really critical question. And I think, and this is something a lot of you are familiar with, but I think the growing movement of slum associations, their networks in Mumbai are a potent illustration of these points of effective intervention. These associations engage with the formal world of the static while mediating the inherent contradictions of issues of legality and formality, the mobile temporal strategies of the kinetic city. And I think the most celebrated one of these is the alliance between the NGO uh, Spark, um, which is a CBO, the National Slum um, Dwellers Federation, the Mahila Milan, uh, and they've secured land uh, to relocate. There have been problems, but, but this is one that has actually, in the urban age, has sort of uh, uh, looked at this a lot and, uh, of course, been in touch with a lot of them. But I think besides representing efforts to reconstitute citizenship in cities, these efforts form a model that produces communities that are able to engage in partnerships with more powerful agencies, whether they're urban, regional, national, multilateral, through this, and I think it's through this process, uh, this restructuring of the city-making process, the formal and the informal, can actually begin to engage with these questions of physical adjacencies and better engagement of the inhabitants of the city at large. So I mean, I think this is one that is a successful model, or at least throws open a discussion for us. And I'm going to just use this as a point of departure to move into the future and to end my talk with some observations, uh, which is something that, because I also practice as an architect, and as a result of the Urban Age conferences in Mumbai and uh, uh, many discussions that took place and a very heated dialogue that happened there between Jokin, who represents the Slum Dwellers Association, and Mukesh Mehta, who represents the government to remake Dharavi, uh, I kind of got engaged with uh, Sheila Patel and others who were friends, but I wasn't ever engaged with them professionally or you know, helped them. Uh, and I began to prod them about why they were doing such terrible toilets and you know the physical form of the housing they were doing was just I mean obviously they were going to get shot down because they were actually perpetuating the same kind of imagery that the government was perpetuating etc and of course I realized that they had no engagement with the profession there were no architects no urban designers who were even interested or engaged with any of this stuff 
And so we got uh, involved with them designing toilets, the public toilets. They're doing some 300 toilets in the slums, and they were just building these concrete blocks. And so we began to question this with them and came up with a new model for a toilet, uh, which is being uh, you know, built, which is where there's a kind of garden green wall that wraps the toilet. There's a caretaker's home and a community center on top of the toilet. And it's, it uses solar panels, so it gets sort of independent from the grid, because when the electricity is not available, People take bulbs off. It's too expensive. Women can't use the toilets at night. It's unsafe for children. A whole host of problems are related to just the logistics of infrastructure. And so how do you begin to design these things and actually embed them there, make them icons, make them places that can, that can actually help the restructuring of these uh, settlements? So we designed about eight or nine for them. They've started constructing three or four. They've run into all sorts of resistances from the government. But anyway, that's a story in itself. But I think what it did was it it brought home two things to me, uh, which then became quite important in these projections that I'm making. One is this complete abject failure uh, on the part of the profession, which in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years with the liberalization of our economy has completely disengaged itself from the realm of these questions. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really a terrible reflection. Uh, and maybe this has happened around the world, but I think in, 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 in a place like India and in Mumbai, where this is more needed than ever before, it's a really terrible reflection. And I think our thinking, and it's interesting because you know, new theory about urban design, urban planning can actually come out of all these questions. This is, this is where the action is. This is the big problem for the world. Uh, and we have a complete premium on the problems, which means we have a complete premium on the potential theories that might come out of this. Uh, and we've completely ignored this. So that became very, very clear to me. Uh, the other thing that became very clear to me was that the Dharavi problem, which is something that is in everyone's imagination, actually had no solution unless you zoomed out to the region. Uh, you, you had no room. It's like a jigsaw puzzle which has no movement that you can't even move one block around, so you of course can't find a solution. And that's why it's so compelling when someone like Mukesh Mehta comes in and erases the whole thing and comes up with a new vision. No one realizes the pain of 20 years you'd go through to make that vision, but it's just that the other side, which is Spark and the NGOs, they don't, they, they don't, they don't have any manner of articulating a counter-argument on those terms. So there's our emotive responses, which of course has everyone clapping in a room when they're made, but they, have no, they can't propel the argument any further. And so these two questions, I think, have been of great concern to me in the last uh, couple of years. And I also then realized, and I was talking to someone earlier, that if you look at what's happening at Mumbai, we went through the Urban Age Awards, we were looking at projects. It's all a celebration of people who have uh, post facto done something in the city. So if an open space, and I mean, I've been part of a lot of those projects myself, so it's, 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 I'm not being critical of others, it's myself included here, self-critical, is that we are reclaiming open space or refixing a waterfront or you know, putting a stay on something. It's, it's all post facto stuff that's being celebrated. And civil society, which is very buoyant right now in India in the ways it's engaging the city, is also working at these small community level groups. So they can get a street on a neighborhood fixed up. But I mean, they have no mechanism to engage with the broader regional debate. And again, I think the vacuum here of advocacy lies, the blame squarely lies on the profession. That's the one that society is investing in to address these questions that's detached from it. They're all busy building the brittle urban form in the form of malls and you know large office parks and things, which is where the 
capital is landing and wants to be manifest very quickly and it's impatient capital and therefore it's very attractive and so this is again a whole sector I think that we need to look at uh, look at very very critically so then how can 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 one also design for this informality kind of in a regional kind of uh, a scale? Uh, can one look at systemic design approaches? Um, go back to what was the proposal for New Bombay uh, and what might be the new ways of picking up that problem? Uh, can we diversify into more dynamic modes? Uh, I think Clifford Gertz in his book, which was for me very inspirational, Agricultural Involution, talked about the Indonesian, Indonesian rice farmers and how they began to do multi-cropping and they began to uh, close in the margins between crops and it made the land highly productive uh, because they would have four crops for example in terms of rotation but when it failed I mean what had happened was then the system had become internally so complex that when it failed it took them years to recoup uh, and I think in many ways I would call this urban involution where the city has got internally so dynamic so productive so functional uh, that um, uh, to <laughs> but but when it fails uh, it's very complex to bring it back and you have to diversify into other modes and this whole discussion about this diversification is a critical one and so these are the projects that actually need attention in Mumbai. It's actually mind-boggling. Everything that you see in yellow is the eastern waterfront, which is a post-industrial landscape, all up for grabs for development. The purple stuff you see are the slums that are all up for slum redevelopment schemes. Uh, uh, what you see in blue are new business districts that have been laid out and land uses have been changed. What you see in the pink uh, across in Navi Mumbai is the new special economic zones that have been laid out. Nothing has been built on these or very little. So this is the opportunity in terms of planning and urban design which we haven't even taken cognizance of uh, because we've got so myopic in our concerns because what has got us highly motivated is when we go down into those myopic concerns of getting an art district going and restoring four buildings we finally feel we can achieve something. So, I mean, this oscillation, I, I think both are important, but how do we situate ourselves between these two extremes is, I think, critical. And then how do we make discernible uh, patterns that exist there? Because I think we have the ability for these spatial imaginations, and I think the urban age did an incredible service in the way they mapped and made explicit these patterns, whether it was governance, relationships of different players in the city, and how can you extend that further? Uh, and I think here what we try to do with my students at MIT in the next few slides are projects that we've done in our lab there, is look at land prices, which are the highest. These are investments. The depth here shows you higher investments, like the bridge across to Navi Mumbai or the flyovers, etc. And then where the new developments have been cleared, the 380 new projects, and where they're coming and how they intersect. Now, what's interesting is there's a huge slippage. If all of this happened in synergy, you'd probably get a form that would work. But all of this black stuff is happening, and it's almost finished. And this stuff is 20 years away, or 10 years away, or 15 years away. So you're going to get some incredible disruptures uh, in the way the functioning of the city occurs if some of these patterns aren't manifest more, building on you know, what has already been done. And then the new neat diagram of looking at a city and the region, the multi-centered city, uh, 
you know, it works beautifully in a McKinsey report, but how do you actually use the reality of the ground, the dynamics of the informal city, the recognition that the informal city moves faster than the formal city to actually make that happen and make a truly networked city that makes the region actually function. And so in the lab, we looked at 11 interventions. I'll just share a couple with you to give you a spectrum of the kinds of things that are interesting me. And I think these become, I can't yet articulate it, but I think these become moments where one can connect the learnings of this reading of the informal city that I've made with how it might inform uh, a, a re-strategization of, of these more formal sort of uh, gestures. So this one, for example, uh, the student names appear at the bottom, looked at slivers along that eastern waterfront. So it said, okay, maybe we can't deal with 1,800 acres. The structure for governance doesn't allow it. And even if we make a vision plan for it, like we've done many times before, it doesn't go anywhere. But if we took the critical slivers here, which are, are, are critical in that if those are lost with whatever development happens, you lose opportunities, which have to do with access to water, with access to mangroves and how they might be actually safeguarded uh, to points where bridges and infrastructure might land eventually when it happens. How do you begin to create temporary strategies to safeguard that? So this project looked at these slivers, looked at very micro kind of levels of intervention where through public space, through allocation in a development plan, you could hold these spaces as a temporary strategy. So that becomes one kind of thing. The other project that I thought was very interesting was we took the mangroves and all the sensitive landscapes. How do you soften the edges of the city again? Because the edges of the city have hardened very much. Uh, and in, when there were ports, there was big investment. They hardened for reasons. Now they're hardening for all the wrong reasons. So how do you create a logic where you might use existing uh, Legislation. So this is this is the kind of condition, and this happens in many many parts, not only of Mumbai. The flooding of the Mithi River, all of that is related to this, but also in Navi Mumbai or New Bombay, which is in physically tabula rasa. I mean, ecologically, it's very rich. But if one has to intervene there post facto, then you're going to deal with this. But if you have a logic which can keep the edges soft, then you actually uh, have a better chance. So we took the legislation of just this simple slum redevelopment authority scheme of transfer of development rights, but created a whole new structure in the way it would be zoned. So rather than using a modernist grid of uh, zoning where you would take slums and build blocks, you actually took uh, this sort of riparian idea of the existing water system, mangroves, uh, and other logic, which could make uh, not only for buffers that are productive and then get tied to the economy of the inhabitants, but also create water systems for transportation and movement. And so these are, the, these are some scenarios of how that might play itself out. So move from things that are kind of interstitial till you have people encroaching it, but to hold it uh, through these sort of strategies using existing images, I mean, uh, legislation. And this last one, I think, of, you know, one of the interesting things is Mumbai grows like that, but its hinterland is that. So in a funny way, um, uh, it's an appendix to Gujarat. Uh, but its political hinterland is Maharashtra because it's on the edge of Gujarat. And this is a, I, I mean, my own theory is that one reason New Bombay was accepted so easily when it was, besides being a very intelligent planning proposition by the politicians in Maharashtra, was that it, 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 it addressed their insecurity of Mumbai being taken over by Gujarat, which was a big issue in the 70s, because New Bombay hit out into the hinterland of Maharashtra. But that, but the energy is yet here because of the rail lines. And so how do you read 
weave this perceptually into the citizen's sort of idea of Bombay. And because this whole edge is hard and it's closed, uh, the, the idea of this project was to center things around the bay. So what we took was we did a study, a very detailed examination of the rail lines, and we found at very critical spaces the rail line created pockets of land that the railway owned, uh, which the railway is now wanting to develop as real estate. But to preempt that, we thought it could become a system of open spaces, again, both productive as well as public. It would not only give access to... 8 million people to public spaces on the rail system, which otherwise, as you saw in the spaces, the public spaces, which are very fractured that you don't get access to. But it would also make the commuting, the visual aesthetic experience of commuters beautiful because you would plant, you would have agriculture, and you could actually make them productive economies. And almost like the emerald necklace, the Boston or Olmsted idea, you would have a kind of system uh, which would respond both uh, in terms of the infrastructure, which actually already exists, but gets reinforced with public space definitions, which, which perceptually uh, uh, reconfigure uh, the way the bay, the, the bay might work. So that was, and then you know, the experiences that you might see were illustrated. So just in, 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 in summary, I think for us, or at least for me, the important issues for Mumbai, uh, and, and I think designing for informality uh, is, is, is not a question which is bracketed by in designing for informality. Uh, I think uh, uh, what I'm trying to pr propose is the, 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 the idea of the kinetic city is one that we should, uh, we should situate our debate, because that, from that we can extract the notion of uh, temporary strategy uh, and, 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 and look at textures that come out of it which might inform our formal pl pl uh, planning policy. So infrastructure as an instrument to orchestrate growth and, and, and how that can become the common denominator for all constituent groups is going to become a very, very big question. Uh, the other one is recognizing the relationship uh, and this kind of sensitivity of softer edges and the natural systems that exist in the metro region. Uh, we've already seen that with flooding, uh, and there's a whole host of questions that are related to it, the environment. And then, of course, lastly, the intersection between the formal and the informal, between urban systems, infrastructure, uh, and how do you make this coexistence happen? Of course, the issues of governance, I mean, all of that comes out of this, but I, I can see these as three uh, or four big questions. And then the role of architects, conservationists, urban designers, planners in drawing up and manifesting these possibilities uh, of these reconciliations, imagining what they might be, what form they would take. And I think, in fact, the urbanism of uh, Mumbai really represents uh, a fascinating uh, intersection where the informal city, physically incoherent and yet a symbol of optimism, challenges the formal city encoded in architecture to reposition and remake the city as a whole. The informal city forces the formal city to re-engage itself in present conditions by dissolving its utopian project to fabricate multiple dialogues in this context. So could this then become the basis for a rational discussion about coexistence? Or is the emergent urbanism of Mumbai inherently paradoxical where the coexistence of these differing forms of cities and their particular states of utopia and perhaps 
to hesitatingly use the word dystopia inevitable. Can the spatial configurations of the simultaneously occurs actually be formally imagined? Or is it again inevitable that these cities will be molded in a singular image over time where architecture becomes this instrument and becomes a singular spectacle of the city like the various city-states I spoke about and that they have dem demonstrated around the world? The kinetic city obviously cannot be seen as a design tool rather than a design, that the, the, a tool rather a demand that conceptions of urbanism create and facilitate environments that are versatile, flexible, robust, ambiguous enough to allow the kinetic quality of the city to flourish. Perhaps the kinetic city might be the tactical approach to take when dealing with the urbanism of the temporary of high densities, intensities in a democracy. And so I think uh, uh, just the last slide, uh, you know, like the informal economy across the globe, the informal city, I think, is here to stay. I mean, among economists, from at least my understanding, limited understanding, uh, the idea that the informal economy is, 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 is a phenomenon. I mean, you have to deal with it. It's integral to what we are doing. Uh, the informal city, similarly, it's not going to go away day after tomorrow. And in India, I mean, this map is an in interesting one, which shows you where our urban future is going. And the real time bomb, urban time bomb that India is sitting on is this, uh, which in 20 years might become 1 million people cities. You might have 400 cities that become 1 million people cities. And what would, I think there are two, in my mind at least, there are two ways this could go. One would be that we intervene very effectively with surgical precision in these 393 cities, and you might be able to actually use infrastructure, architecture, uh, the static city, so to speak, to orchestrate uh, a, a, a form, a coherent form. The other scenario would be that these would become city urban regions, and you can see from their location that's already beginning to happen, uh, in which case it'll probably go faster than the former city can respond, which means that uh, the imaginations of what might be temporary, elastic, holding strategies, tactical approaches become very critical in the imagination of regional dynamics, regional planning, landscape, urbanism, whatever category uh, you want to put, uh, put this uh, under. And I think so that, uh, you know, just to sort of end, it really is, I think it's a choice we have to we have to really zoom out to make. I mean, looking at Dharavi uh, has been our biggest mistake. That we've spent too much time uh, on a box that has no leeway, uh, and we have lost too much time on this broader debate. And designing for the informal city uh, can con only come out of uh, uh, the simultaneous. Uh, uh, you know, engagement uh, with both ends of this spectrum. And in spite of, I think, the many disjunctures or many evident disjunctures in my argument, I think it's yet clumsy. I'm yet trying to get my own fingers on it. I think what this reading of the city does is it celebrates the dynamic and pluralistic processes that make the urban Indian landscape. I think within this urbanism, the formal and the informal cities necessarily coexist and blur into an integral entity, which I'm calling the kinetic city, even if momentarily, to create, I think, margins for adjustments that both their simultaneous existences demand. And I think this, this simultaneity, the, the fact that they both rely on this, is, is, is the crucial one to recognize. And I think when we do that, we might go away from the binary and get into a more productive discussion about what the future of urban India might be. Thank you very much.
genetics if you has something to do with your lecturing style. Oops. If you've learned, you've learned many things about your city, but also how to pack in in one hour and ten minutes the most incredibly rich uh, sort of menu of things uh, and dimensions, which are very fruitful for a discussion that we can have now for another twenty minutes or so. Uh, we can have an open discussion, so questions uh, to roll. There are a number of points I'd like to bring up that may be other colleagues who would like to reflect on things. But are there? Yeah, yeah, and I just want to say one more thing that some of these answers, if some el someone else wants to answer these questions, please do <laughs> add because I don't think I can answer all of them. But yes, sorry. Yeah, there's a gentleman there and then there. You, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in one part of the city that happens, and that's why, you know, the successful examples that you see and that you might know of, whether it's the art district or the waterfronts or the, the public spaces that have been restored, they come about because they are a stable set of stakeholders who can engage in the city, but it's happening at those small scales. But there are large parts of the city where uh, the stakeholders or constituencies haven't formed themselves or are beginning to form. Uh, I mean, even in Dharavi, uh, the formation of uh, that as a group of stakeholders is a recent phenomena that came out as a reaction to the fact that they were going to be removed, the fact that these NGOs began to work there, uh, etc. So often, the, the notion of stakeholders is an ambiguous one because they're people who've arrived, they've moved, there's a fluidity, it's dynamic. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem. Tell us who you are. And I'm going to act your burden, not answering, asking a question. Who are you? Tell us who you are. I'm Nirothpil, I'm a PhD student at SA, and I studied in Bombay. I see. One of the biggest problems that I see, the tension that I see in this presentation is that, on one hand, it seems that there is plasticity between formal and informal. But on the other hand, there is still a very clear divide. I mean, it's, it's heuristically very important to have those, those binaries because uh, we as observers may not may <coughs> find it plastic, but then people who live in those slums, they have a very clear idea of being in informal area, housing-wise, water-wise. So but often not work-wise. This is what is changing. Yeah, yes. yes, but in terms of amenities, they do have these binaries. 
So we are in a double bind here. On one hand, you cannot not have these plastic, you know, blurrings and all that. And yet, on the other hand, uh, you need them. So how do we get out of it? Oh, yeah, that's a difficult one. I mean, I think it's what you're, you're, you're referring to the perceptual, which is true, which is also, I think, in the post-industrial scenario, that's breaking a lot. Uh, because there are actually people who live in those expensive apartments whose business is located in the informal city, mm -hmm. and vice versa. I have people in my office who work and with formal jobs. Uh, being part of my office, they get access to loans to get housing. Uh, some of them are getting out of it, but they actually live in some of these settlements. So they have very stable, respectable, formal jobs. They appear on my website. They have, you know, they, they're all part of all of that, but they can't get out of the trap of housing often. So I think uh, with this fracturing of management, Manufacturing, which has now played itself. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, some of you probably know that, but the train ridership has gone up, even though the birth rate or the growth of the city's population is sort of tapering. It's growing faster because of the movement <coughs> of people. Manufacturing has got fragmented. So there's, the plasticity is beginning to happen just through the forms of new occupation. Uh, but yes, perceptually, there is, it'll yet be a binary. And I think we as designers and architects only reinforce that binary. So my argument is not that the binary does exist. Of course it exists. It'll take a long lots of doing to untangle the binary. But I mean the question is in design terms do we need to reinforce that binary? And so what I was trying to show was that even the the not poor city uses the same kind of tactical approaches uh, for other reasons of density, etc. And I think we can play a big role in how that imagination is perhaps altered. Maybe that's the optimism I have to survive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, but I think that's precisely why, after showing you the toilets, I moved into the region. Because it's only with that kind of uh, imagination that you can begin to get into questions of redistribution uh, by you know, reopening up that land in viable ways. Uh, so even like if you go back to the New Bombay conception, uh, it, it got retarded, or you could use the term failed, because infrastructure didn't get to it. I mean, the railway mm -hmm. only went there 15 years after New Bombay was instituted. It's only now buoyant. Uh, but even then, it's becoming a dormitory town. There are many other amenities that don't, don't exist. So that project I showed you, for example, around the bay, where the rail line, uh, you know, if you ask someone in Mumbai, an ordinary person to 
sketch a map to show you where New, New Bombay is, they usually would sketch it way north of Bombay because all they know is it takes you three hours to get there uh, because you usually drive or it takes you two hours by train or whatever. Uh, but it's actually across the bay. Uh, and so linked to the redistributive, the question of redistribution, whether it's economy, access to housing, affordable land, would be the reimagination of the regional scenario. And that's why what I was trying to say, I'm sorry if that wasn't communicated, was that when I was doing those toilets, I realized exactly what you raised, that we can't solve the problem if you look at those swaths of land and maybe say divide it into half and put everyone in a high rise and let the developer develop the other half. You get a strange kind of limited redistribution. But you have to get back into the regional imagination uh, and open up affordable land which is accessed by infrastructure uh, that doesn't allow, I mean, that doesn't lock the slums into being on those 8% of land by the railway lines because that's the only access they have and transportation is the best indirect subsidy on housing so it's already subsidized you could even subsidize it further if it meant doing this redistribution so those discussions you, I mean, I'm only agreeing with what you're saying uh, I, I don't disagree with it and if my talk um, miscommunicated that I apologize for it but the end was intended to actually point to that direction And so this, sorry, just to take one more second. I mean, I, I, you suddenly start imagining the region. It doesn't mean the Dharavi problem will go away. We might yet have to do what we are doing in any case in Dharavi. But it would at least open up this other discussion. I, 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 I'm sorry. So you can think about it. Too. No, I can, I can actually answer this very quickly. Let me just okay. do that. Yeah, I'll just do that. Sorry. No, no, I mean, without going into the detail of photovoltaic or not, I mean, I think the question is of patronage right now because the government has devolved itself of a lot of these responsibilities and private sector has kicked in and it's taking the path of least resistance. In most, I'm talking about India generally and that's what the SEZ and, you know, all of that stuff is related to. So uh, for architects and designers and I think patronage is really the problem right now and that's why this sort of space of civil society of the NGOs is an interesting one because they are 
they are, they are making the right intersections, they're creating these right kind of circuits between lateral and you know, uh, vertical forces, more powerful agencies, all of that. But it's not a space that uh, architects have engaged in adequately. And I think it has to happen both ways. I think that whole sector has to recognize the role that design in this broad way can play <coughs> in furthering their own arguments and agendas. And then that form of patronage might address a number of questions that you're asking about. Uh, and I think patronage within the other two sectors, as government gets clearer about what it's doing right now, it's in, it's concentrating on very limited forms of infrastructure and imagining the built environment in very limited ways. And, 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 and the private sector is greedy right now because India opened up its economy after maybe imposed sanctions on ourselves for four decades. Oh, so, is yeah. somewhere that's, that is not the case? <laughs> what? But I, yeah, so actually, I think this would be everywhere. I think this is everywhere. Yeah, this is everywhere. So I think this is a, it's a case of patronage for cities everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. We could use similar words for what's happening here. Uh, I'm uh, Daniel Clare, I'm a postgraduate teaching assistant at the DPU of UCL Rutgers. Um, I have more of a comment regarding the role of participation in the Ravi. Um, you mentioned that there's the Mukesh Mehta plan on one hand, and on the other hand, you have people, NGOs, you named Spark and Shilap and Mel, who uh, they only didn't really suggest anything but just were in opposition, which I'm not sure. I could that is actually the expert committee for the Mikesh and Dr. But um, when in settings such as this one, where uh, the institutional structure does not include uh, any of the actual stakeholders, the citizens of the Rabi, and the only power is actually to say no, um, where are the plans that could ever work? I mean, I think it's, it's a starting point that seems to be uh, missing. Right, I think this was partly addressed in your talk, but yeah, I've just been yeah, looking yeah, very briefly yeah, on that. No, no, I mean, I, 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 again, in agreement, I don't have anything, so that's, that is the problem. And I haven't myself, I must admit, worked at all with Dharavi. With Dharavi. Uh, I, all the other stuff that I'm doing, none of that is in Dharavi. Uh, it's all uh, in other smaller sort of pockets. And the reason for that is there are just so many people worrying about Dharavi that I thought uh, one can do other things. <laughs> so. Absolutely, and I think these last the, the last question is linked to this because I'm, I'm very familiar with that project and with Himanshu Parekh, and he won the Arakan Award for it, and all the you, you know you just said that very casually. There were issues, and you moved on, but they were very big issues, which are linked to exactly what the last question is. So. Uh, I mean, that was uh, a good technocratic uh, solution, which was very, very valuable. And I think what it made evident was all the questions that were raised 
who were the stakeholders, how they connected, the question of tenure, you know, all of that. So, but yes, uh, absolutely, all of those have to be brought in here. Okay. Um, yeah, just very, very, very briefly. I'm Adam Kazan, in the Cities Program at LSE. Um, a question about best practice and, and kind of translation of which I think came up in your talk. And I was just wondering what you think about how you start facilitating a language of confidence or, or even to counter kind of the static language of best practice that travels, a kinetic confidence in, in India um, in urban planning so that best practice or innovation isn't constrained by McKinsey reports or the kinds of people that governments look to for, for the language that they think is Right. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the, the answer across everything I showed is, but I mean, the reason I put that conservation project there uh, was for this reason, that uh, uh, I mean, when, when, when preservation became an issue in a city like Mumbai, we really had this transportation of best practices that came across, and it took us a good 10 or 15 years of working to reconfigure it uh, amidst a lot of opposition. I mean, the conservation's lobby there, I mean, they would not accept, even now, that this is a, a legitimate uh, approach. And I mean, I think what you raise is a, is, a, is, a, is a very important and a very complex question, because today with media, with the way ideas can travel so easily, uh, the way they get celebrated and recognized, and often by the west of the east, you know, etc., the north-south, and all of that. That uh, how how ideas are made to uh, evolve in a place uh, is uh, is fraught with all sorts of problems and difficulties. And I mean, I think the conservation projects, and there are a number that we've been working on uh, around India, where we've tried to raise this, ranging from say the Taj Mahal, and even actually questioning what we see and are conserving there is, is it legitimate? The garden being a big example, which is totally <laughs> inauthentic and uh, but, but, but uh, hard to break from. Or in a post-colonial condition where the question of the creators and the custodians and that complicated relationship. So yes, of course, this is something we should be looking at very critically. And I know you're working on it, so we'll wait for you to uh, <laughs> tell us eventually. <laughs> well, as we begin to wind up, I mean, one of the purposes of the Urban Age generally and this series of, S uh, of uh, lectures which are being presented is about the shaping of the environment. And I think uh, what has been a sort of central approach in everything we've done is never to go somewhere or to ask someone to come and talk and say what you should do. Right. I mean, that's very important. But what do you learn? Uh, how do you put a mirror up to a city uh, and all its different dimensions to sort of understand what's going on? I'd, I'd like to maybe turn some of the questions around, which is, I mean, rightly everyone is feeling, well, okay, what does this mean for the future of urban India? What does it mean for the future of the communities there? But it seems to me you're touching upon with this notion, and it's a new and fresh notion of the kinetic city, but you're touching on an issue which is not in the discourse of design. And so the question is, what does this mean for other cities? Mm -hmm. well, what does this mean in terms of the design in all senses, design of the infrastructure, the architecture, the governance, uh, of perhaps cities that we don't know of yet, or the future of cities in parts of Europe that mm -hmm. might be changing? And just to throw my two cents in, in terms of what I picked up today very strongly, is that when you talk about uh, your city uh, and its kinetic energy, you touch upon two things that we're always trying to talk about, which, and I think contemporary architecture fails miserably at dealing with. One is to create complexity. I mean, every modern environment that I, I can think of, like modern, I mean, built in the last 20, 30 years, has this 
extraordinary sense of soullessness, some illustrated on the fringes of right. Mumbai, but you don't have to go very far from here to have the same sort of experience mm -hmm. of Canary Wharf or yeah. Board Gate or anything like that. And the other one is the ability to create density, uh, but with a sort of time dynamism okay. and change. Now, are there aspects of what you're gathering in your research and your thinking of Mumbai in terms of this generation of density and complexity, which you can export. Mm -hmm. And I think, as a, you know, you're going to be teaching now at Harvard yeah. generations of architects and urban designers from all over the world, probably right. mainly from uh, China. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. I hope so not they, from they India. They can afford yes. the fees. Um, <laughs> That's true. Like that. um, uh, and what, what can you tell them? What is it that you've learned that? Uh, can help. I think that, that's something which intrigues many of us because I think, but I, I think you rather than throw your hands up in the air. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think you've sort of you've laid out the answer, but I sort of will just add to it, which is that I, I think in the way we've been taught urban design, places like Harvard and others, uh, there were there were a couple of assumptions which I think have completely collapsed now. One is I think from the 80s, I would think, at Harvard, the city as an artifact was imagined as something that the market would create, and you pander to those dynamics. Now, that's completely changed. And I think uh, I think what, what it leads to, which is based on all the questions you've raised, density, and I would use elasticity for the temporal kind of thing, et cetera, is that cities won't be as neat as we have been taught they could be. Uh, and they will be highly pluralistic in all ways, including urban form. Uh, I think South Asian urbanism, India in particular, can teach that. I think that's, that's, I think that's a very big lesson that can come out of South Asia. And I think the challenge then for urban designers and architects and planners is to imagine how very different adjacencies can be made to work together uh, in, 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 in humane ways, uh, not in disruptive ways, uh, and how infrastructure can be used as that invisible organizing mechanism by which very disparate groups, uh, both in a kind of social way, but also in the manifestation of form can relate to this. So you're going to, I think, go away from the neat diagram of the transect that the new urbanists have for us, or the idea of the city core tapering out to suburbia, uh, with all of that getting scrambled into uh, you know, very close adjacencies within cities. Uh, and of course, the implications of that are uh, gated community, communities because then, I mean, reactions or solutions to those adjacencies are to create the walls. Uh, fortunately, India, again, because of its democracy and its cultural, social makeup and all of that, hasn't done what South, I mean, the same thing when it happens in South and Central America is about those walls. Uh, that those, uh, those, those thresholds aren't as soft. And I think the, 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 the thresholds in India are very soft between those. But they're in very clumsy configurations right now. Uh, and I think how one imagines that in, in, in architectural and design terms, in urban design terms, as well as in planning terms regionally, uh, and, and in preservation questions, uh, I think is what uh, uh, can come out of this. I mean, one way one could read some of those I mean, extraordinary photographs are showing what happens in 24 hours next to the seafront, I mean, which are mind-bogglingly insightful. Uh, you, you could read that and say, well, actually, architecture uh, or planning has, we have nothing to do, right? Because it sort of happened. Not at all, because you then said at some point, I think an important point, that uh, the, 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 the design of the formal sets the scene for the informal. And I'm 
keep on raising this issue because I think it's important to all of us who are studying cities today, which is, and I'm, I'm very involved, as some of you know, in the future of the Olympic uh, Park in, in East London. And there's this fear that it will be completely dead. It will, might be beautiful if we're lucky. The Tories and the Libs don't cut up the little money that there's left. It might be beautiful, but it might, might be totally soulless. Or maybe one thing will happen on a Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock on for six months of the year. Yeah. While you were showing us how yeah. this incredible creativity uh, and, and, and dynamism, I mean, that's what I would sort of think is a lesson I've learned from tonight about what, what's that contemporary discourse which yeah. needs to be infected into. Uh, and you know, just to add to that, and I brought it back to this slide, among all these 11 interventions we got students to do, the one for me that was the most brilliant and uh, Probably, I think he got the highest grades too. It was a guy who took this zone, uh, did an incredible analysis. He was a Colombian student. He did the most amazingly articulate analysis of that zone, of the hardening of the edge. There were pumping stations here, the mangroves, the salt pans. And in his final presentation, he surprised us all by saying, there is no project. And that was very powerful. And I think the big lesson for architects today in the world is to sometimes recognize that there is no project. Uh, we, I mean, we are compelled by making a project, by looking at a site. And I think that could be a mega lesson. Richard, are we happy with that answer, Richard? <laughs> 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 I think we should bring this uh, to an end. Uh, uh, Raul has flown across the world to give this talk. We are absolutely delighted. Uh, the Alfred Herrhausen Society has funded uh, this series of events uh, and also intriguingly you touched on that uh, uh, toilet structure that you're designing we a number of people here in the front were involved with you in selecting the winner which was well, a sort of right. powerful <laughs> example of that project so that's why yeah that whole design came out of those discussions no, no, that's that's right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i just want to uh, also remind you that uh, there's uh, next week another uh, lecture in the series by Hashim again a member uh, from, uh, of SAR from uh, the Aga Khan professor at Harvard who will be talking about Beirut uh, and setting it in a very uh, international <coughs> context but also multidisciplinary context. Uh, a month after that the architect Rem Kulhas of OMA will be speaking about intervention in the international city and in the autumn David Schipperfield will talk about the intervention in the formal city, uh, Berlin in particular. So these are parts of a series of lectures about shaping cities. Thank you very much to Ute Volkan for uh, allowing all this to happen, and thank you very much for Maroto. <laughs>